Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Powerful Prayer. All right, so as James begins to wind down his letter, uh, we know as we read this last section that he had prayer on his mind. In verses 13 through 18, he mentioned prayer in every single verse. He's, he wrote down the word seven times in just six verses. And verse 16, of course, maybe you have memorized it, it's classic, right? The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Of course, that's the ESV. Uh, many of you maybe memorized it like me in the King James Version back in the day. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. All right, so James knew this principle better than anybody. James knew that prayer actually changes things, which is why he prayed a lot. In fact, James prayed so much, he earned a nickname from the Christian community. They used to call him Camel Knees. <laughs> and so since camels spend so, so much time kneeling down, I've been to Israel, I think, four times, and I've, been, I've ridden on camels, and I've noticed how often they kneel down and stand up, kneel down and stand up, and so what happens is that after a while, their knees become pretty rough looking. Well, apparently, James's knees became, uh, became pretty rough looking because of all the time that he spent on those knees in prayer before the Father in the name of Jesus, asking God to change things. And so what, 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 what do we know happened? What we know happened was that James was so incredibly used by God. I mean, he got saved once he saw that the resurrected Christ uh, was alive, and then he grew like crazy. He, he, he grew so much, he became the lead pastor of the megachurch in Jerusalem. That's the first half of the book of Acts, which we already studied a year ago. And then he became the, the leader of the Jerusalem Council in, in Acts chapter 15. He wrote this amazing inspired letter in the end of our New Testament, which God has used to impact not millions with an M, but billions with a B of people for the last 2,000 years. Why? I think one of the major reasons God used James so, so much is because of his prayer life. And ladies and gentlemen, if you and I will get serious about our prayer life, God will do great things through us as well. And so right now, if you are looking at James chapter five, verse 12, both here and at home, can you say amen? amen? Okay, so here we go. But above all, my brothers, do not swear. It's not talking about profanity here. There's other verses that prohibit profanity in the New Testament. This is something different. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other, what's the word? Oath, okay, he's talking about swearing insincere, frivolous oaths. By the way, in other parts of the Bible, um, men of God swore oaths sincerely and seriously, and so he's not prohibiting all oaths, he's prohibiting, in verse 12, insincere, you know, deceitful, uh, frivolous oaths. Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But just let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Some people feel like they gotta swear an oath in order for people to believe them. 
You know, I, I swear to God it's true. I swear on my mother's grave, I'll pay you back, right? As soon as someone swears, don't you start to doubt the authenticity of what they're saying, all right? And so just let your yes be yes. If, if you gotta swear an oath, there's a problem. Because here's what I know, if you have character, if you're honest, if you have a good reputation, when you say yes, people will know that guy, that gal means yes. And when you say no, they'll know you mean no. You don't have to swear an oath. All right, let's get into prayer. Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. All right, and so now we come to this amazing privilege of prayer and James now addresses three different groups in verses 13 and 14. He addressed those who were suffering, he addressed those who were cheerful, and he addressed those who were sick. And then he tells each group what to do in light of their situation. Now how many of you believe that the Bible still needs to be applied today, right? And so this is for us as well, it applies to us. And so if you're suffering, hey, do this, pray. <laughs> if you're cheerful, sing praise. And if you're sick, call the elders of the church. All right, so if we're suffering, why should we pray? Well, here's what I know. When we pray, God gives us peace. <laughs> Paul told the, the Christians in the church of Philippi, he said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, here it is, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And so what I know, and many of you know also by experience, is when you're having a hard time, a difficult time, and you decide that you're gonna fall down on your knees like James, you're gonna to begin to pray. At some point during that prayer, the Holy Spirit will often give his supernatural peace, and all of a sudden you're experiencing something that's otherworldly, it's from God, and now, because you've been touched by God, you can keep moving forward in the midst of that trial. Has anybody here ever experienced this before? Right, if you haven't, Man, get down on your knees when you're suffering and, and go to the Lord. He'll help you through. He never promised to deliver us from trials. He promised to be with us in the trials. If you are cheerful, sing praise. Why? Because every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Listen, in this fallen world, have you watched the news lately? In this fallen world of misery and anger and hatred, right? In this life, if you have cheerfulness and joy, that's a good gift from your Father above. And so remember to thank him when you're cheerful. And one of the ways you can do that is what you just did a little while ago, sing praises to his name. And don't just stop on Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon 
man, put in the, the headphones, put, put on this, the, the Christian FM or whatever, and, and um, worship the Lord all week long. If you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, sing praise. And if you're sick, very interesting, call the elders for prayer. Now, why should we do that? Because there are certain gifted men in every local church who can come around you when you're weak and feeble and they can encourage you and comfort you and pray over you in the name of the Lord. Now, I don't think James was talking about if you have a common cold, <laughs> call the elders. Or if your allergies flare up, call the elders. No, no, this is something more serious than that. In fact, in the Greek, the word sick in verse 14 literally means to be weak, feeble, to be without strength, powerless, this is not a common cold or allergies, to be feeble or sick, all right? And so if you're with me and listening, can you say amen right here? Amen. Uh, stay with me because this is, um, it's so important we handle the, the word of truth correctly. You know, lots of people want the Bible to say what they want it to say, but here's what I'm committed to as your pastor. I wanna know the author's intent. It's not about what we want the Bible to say, it's what's inspired by the Holy Spirit is what did the author mean? And so as we exegete the text, we gotta be very careful, we gotta handle the word of truth correctly. And so this word right here, it could refer to physical weakness due to some type of illness or injury, but legitimately it could also refer, as it does in other New Testament passages, to spiritual weakness or being weak in faith. And so you gotta understand the historical context of who James was writing to in the first century. He was writing to Jewish believers in Jesus as the Messiah. Now how many of you know it was hard to be a Jew in the first century and claim Jesus as Lord? I mean, you got persecuted if you went public with your faith. And so what often happened is that there was this intense persecution and some were likely physically beaten for their faith, injured. And others, well, they struggled spiritually because they kept getting all this negativity from the community. If you were a Jew in the first century and you said, Jesus is my Lord, they could kick you out of the synagogue. Your spouse could walk away from you. The, some, some scholars believe the Apostle Paul had a wife and she walked away from him when he came to Jesus as Messiah. You could get kicked out of the synagogue. Your spouse could walk out on you. You could get fired from your job. You could be ostracized from the community, right? And all of this is hard. And so in, in verse 14, whether James was speaking of physical weakness due to illness or injury, or whether he was speaking of spiritual weakness because of discouragement of soul, the remedy was to call the elders to come and pray over that weak and feeble believer and anoint that person with oil. All right, so what kind of oil? Well, olive oil. <laughs> olive oil. Now, there's really good Biblical scholars, some of them interpret oil literally in this text. Other, uh, others of them interpret oil figuratively in this text. Some interpret the word oil in a literal way, in a medicinal way, as a first century way to help the injured. 
An example would be the Good Samaritan. I think I talked about this a month ago. So the Good Samaritan is going down that road and he sees this injured man on the side of the road, beaten half to death, and instead of like the priest and Levite just saying, oh, somebody else will take care of it, he gets down off his animal and what does he do? He takes a bottle of wine, he pours wine into the wounds as an antiseptic and then what, what, what does he pull out of his satchel? Does anybody remember? Olive oil. Olive oil, he pours his olive oil into this guy's wounds in order to soothe his injuries and bring comfort in his time of pain. And so we can imagine, back to our text, a first century believer getting beaten up for his faith in Jesus as Lord and calling the elders and the elders coming, praying over this person, encouraging this person and pouring, applying olive oil like the Good Samaritan to soothe that person's wounds. That is a legitimate interpretation of the Greek. And if you have the Ryrie Study Bible and you read the notes, you could see that for yourself. Other great Bible scholars, they interpret the word oil in a figurative way as a symbol of the Holy Spirit and his comforting presence in our lives. And a great example of this is Psalm 23. Many of you have, have memorized Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Here it is. You anoint my head with oil, olive oil. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, right? What a great God. That's our good shepherd. That's our good shepherd encouraging, helping, comforting his sheep when they need help. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does. Jesus called the Holy Spirit in the original language the par parakletos. The paraclete, comforter. Literally one who comes alongside to help. And so again, back to the text, we can imagine a first century believer. They're weak, they're feeble, either a spiritual weakness or a physical weakness, we don't know. And they call the elders to come alongside. Spirit-filled elders to come alongside of them and comfort them and encourage them and help them pray over them and anoint them with the substance that symbolizes the Holy Spirit of God. So whether you interpret verse 14 and the word oil literally or figuratively, what we can all agree on is this. When a Christian is weak and feeble, when they're sick, whether it's physical or spiritual, they need help. They need ministry. And so who's supposed to come, the weak and feeble believer? Who's supposed to come to help the weak and feeble believer? Those who are strong in the local church. Those who are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. The elders who are supposed to be walking with the Lord. And they come and they encourage and help and strengthen this person. Does this make sense to you guys? And so Pastor Matt Messiano, our care pastor, I thank God for him. 
I thank God that he uh, leads our care ministry. This is what he focuses on primarily um, during the week, and as of next week, we're gonna have 12 elders that Pastor Matt leads. We thank God for these men of God, and so hey, if you're weak and feeble, don't just, I'll take care of it. I don't wanna embarrass myself. Did you guys know that this local church is not a museum for saints, it's a hospital for sick people? It's a hospital for sick people, all right? So give Pastor Matt a call. Some of the elders will come. They'll anoint you with oil and they'll pray for you in Jesus' name. All right, look at verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save sozo, it literally means in the context, restore the one who is sick. Now this is very interesting to me. In the Greek, the word for sick in verse 15 is different than the word for sick in verse 14. See, we miss some of this in the English. But Greek is a very descriptive language. And so in verse 14, I already told you, the word sick means weak and feeble. In verse 15 here, it means to grow weary. All right, and so, and the prayer of faith will restore the one who has grown weary. And the Lord, I love this about the Lord, the good shepherd, right, Psalm 23. The Lord will raise him up. And, look at this, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now that last statement I just read to you gives us a clue that sometimes And because I don't want to be misunderstood, I want everybody right now, please, to say the word sometimes. Okay, so sometimes sickness, whether it's spiritual weakness or physical weakness, sometimes, not all the time, it is a result of sin in our lives. You know, some people say, you know, I just want to go to a church that's going to build me up every week and encourage me every single week. And that's great. I do too. (laughs) But don't you understand that the New Testament church, if it's gonna be biblical, is also going to rebuke people when they sin? Do you know the Holy Spirit comes and he encourages and he comforts? But did you know that he also reproves and rebukes and exhorts as well? What is it about our our nature that, 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 you know, we just want to be built up every weekend, walk out feeling like a million bucks? Well. Are we really teaching verse by verse through the New Testament? Because if we don't skip any verses, here's what we find out, that sometimes when we're in unrepentant sin, we're struggling and we're allowing this sin to have victory over our lives, God's gonna do some stuff to get our attention sometimes. Now we know this is true in the lives of the carnal Corinthians. The carnal Corinthians, 2,000 years ago, they would go to the Lord's Supper table. Now, the Lord's Supper table back in those days was an agape feast, okay? So it wasn't kind of like what we do um, uh, here today, but what they would do is they would have the worship and the teaching of the Word of God, and then they'd have a big potluck. Everybody would bring their food, right? And they would enjoy a potluck, and then after the potluck, they would have the Lord's Supper, breaking the bread that symbolizes the broken body of Christ, and then... Um, the wine or juice, whatever they used to symbolize his shed blood, okay? And so um, in that context, in Corinth, you know what some people were doing? They were coming to the agape feast drunk. And they were taking 
the elements that symbolize the precious broken body of Christ and the precious shed blood of Christ while they were drunk and they're being disrespectful and they're being selfish, hogging their food or skipping in line or whatever they were doing from poor people who needed food and they're just kinda, and it's like, whoa. Pardon the bad English, this ain't right. And you know what happened? I'll quote it to you. Paul wrote to them and said, 1 Corinthians 11.30, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. They're disrespecting the Lord because they're disrespecting the Lord's Supper and some of them get sick and some of them, I'm sorry, many of them are weak and ill and some have died in the church. And so, hey, this is also the case for David. David said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. And day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength has dried up as by the heat of summer. And so David had sinned against the Lord, and as a result, God's discipline came down on David. God's hand was heavy upon David, which caused him to groan all day long as his strength was dried up. Now, perhaps this was as a result of his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, we know Psalm 51 is absolutely because of his sin with Bathsheba. Scholars aren't sure about Psalm 32, but what we do know is that David had sinned, and what we also know is that, in, listen to me, in spite of his sin, God still loved David. Listen, Hebrews chapter 12, verse six, the Lord disciplines those he loves. Thank God we have a Father in heaven that if we are gonna walk up to uh, a stove and try to put our hand on top, he's gonna go, no, no. Why? Because he loves you enough to warn you and to discipline you and me and the Corinthians and David. Listen, this is a God of love who disciplines sometimes. And we thank God for it because in David's life, it led to his repentance. That's Psalm 32, three and four. In the very next verse in Psalm 32, five, David goes, I acknowledge my sin to you. He's like, this groaning all day long, I'm done with this. <laughs> my, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And this is what I love about God. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Isn't God awesome? Isn't God great, right? God wants to forgive. God wants to restore. And right now, some of you either in this room or watching right now online, you're covering your sin and it's causing conviction, it's causing discipline in your life. Why don't you be like David and say, I'm just done with this groaning. Admit it and quit it. So back to our text, the elders are there and they're ministering for the weak and feeble and weary brother or sister, and if during conversation they find out that there's unrepentant sin in this person's life, what do they do? What do elders do? They encourage you to repent, admit it, and quit it. And here's the promise we have in scripture. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I gotta take a quick couple minutes, sidetrack, to deal with a false doctrine. There's a false doctrine in the big C church. It's been floating around the church for some time now. And some people will use verse 15 that we just read 
to teach that it's always God's will to heal a believer who is physically ill. It's always God's will, some will say. If you pray the prayer of faith, it's always God's will to heal. And if you're not healed, you have a lack of faith. Ladies and gentlemen, that's not right. You see, one of the important tenets of hermeneutics, the word hermeneutics means proper Bible interpretation. One of the many tenets in hermeneutics is you keep a verse in its context. You never, again, we would love to make the Bible say whatever we want it to say. And so how many people take verses completely out of context because they want it to say this? No, 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 no. Leave the verse in its context, read the passage before the verse, read the passage after the verse before you try to interpret the verse. And, very important tenet, you leave the verse in the context of the entire scriptures. All right, so what does the whole counsel of God teach? The whole counsel of God teach, teaches that the Lord still heals today. How many of you guys believe God still does miracles today, right? A thousand percent, a hundred percent. This is why we can pray in faith, because God's still in the miracle business. God still heals today. Legitimately, I mean, real stuff. And so, you look at the whole Bible though, and here's what you have to admit if you're honest, sometimes it's not his will to restore a believer to health in this life. That's just being honest. You say, how do you know that, pastor? The Bible says so. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse seven, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. How many times did Paul pray that God would remove the thorn in the flesh? You tell me. Three times. God, remove this thorn in the flesh. And how did God answer him? No, no, <laughs> no. Why? He said, Paul, my strength is made perfect in weakness. You see, in the United States of America, we want a religion where we're always strong, where we're always on top, where we're always prospering materially or whatever, right? And God's saying, no, no, no. The best way that I can be seen through your life is if you will die to your pride and become weak. My weak, my, my strength is made perfect in weakness, Paul. And so he had to live with a thorn in the flesh. Second Timothy chapter four, verse 20, says that Paul left a fellow believer, Trophimus, sick at Miletus. Okay, so one of his team members who evangelized with him got sick. Now what do Christians do when someone gets sick? You pray for them, right? So we always do. So no doubt they prayed for Trophimus, but he didn't get well. Finally, Paul's like, I love you, brother, but I gotta keep going. Again, 2 Timothy 4.20, Paul left Trophimus sick at Miletus. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, says that Timothy, the spirit-filled young pastor, Timothy, Paul's protege, it says he had frequent ailments. He didn't get sick once or twice. This, this Christian man got sick a lot. 2 Kings 13, 14 says Elisha, not Elijah, but Elisha, the miracle man, the guy who, um, just miracle after miracle in his ministry, it says that, and I quote, he fell sick with the illness from which he would die. Because this is what happens in a fallen world. 
And of course, the most shocking of all is Job chapter one, which we looked at last week, where God allowed Satan, again, how many of you guys believe that Satan is on a leash, right, and God is sovereign over Satan? We're not dualists, we don't believe Satan and God have the same power, no. One's the creator, one's the created. And Lucifer, the perfect angel, fell and became Satan. He hates your guts, he hates my guts. And so skin for skin! God says, all right, you know, don't take his life, but he's in your hands. And Satan struck Job with physical sickness. He had boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, loathsome boils, he sat on an ash heap and he picked and scraped the boils with broken pieces of pottery. All right, and so are we to say that in all of these cases, whether it's Paul or Trophimus or Timothy or Elisha or Job, that all these guys, these godly guys, had a lack of faith? Be careful. You and I are not Jesus. We can't see into people's hearts. When I first got saved, there was an um, older gentleman, a spirit-filled, born-again Christian. He knew I didn't know the Bible at all, and so he would invite me over to his home for Bible study. And so I would go over to his house, and he had polio, and so he was always on crutches. And as I got to know this gentleman, as we were going through the Bible, learning the Bible, I was learning the Bible, he was teaching me the Bible, um, he said to me, you know, one time, Mike, I went to a prayer meeting, and they all laid hands on me and prayed that God would heal me. But as you can see, you know, I still have polio. He said, but later, after the prayer meeting, when I didn't get better, one of the guys in the group came to me and said, you know what? The reason you're not healed is your lack of faith. Ladies and gentlemen, may that never happen in this local church. We can't see people's hearts. Jesus knows, but we don't know. How many of you guys have heard of Johnny Erickson Tata? Johnny's an evangelical author and speaker. She's the founder of Johnny and Friends. In 1967, she had a diving accident which left her a quadriplegic. And you know what? She still serves the Lord with all her heart to this very day, sometimes painting by holding a paintbrush between her teeth. Nothing's stopping this lady from serving the Lord, even though she's a quadriplegic. And so she's a godly woman. She sought God's healing, but she remains a quadriplegic. But guess what? She's not gonna sit in a wheelchair for, forever. One day she'll be set free. And one day, ladies and gentlemen, all of us are gonna be set free. One day, don't you know, we're gonna get resurrected bodies that are immortal, bodies that can never get sick and bodies that can never die. It's gonna be a wonderful thing. Why? Because of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. That's why. And one day we're gonna stand in new bodies on a new earth. I read it. It's the last two chapters of the Bible. We're gonna stand in new bodies on a new earth looking up to a new heaven and there's gonna be a new Jerusalem about the size from New York to Colorado, Canada to Texas. It's gonna be beautiful. And that's gonna be our home. That's gonna be our dwelling place. And we're gonna stand in these new bodies and there's gonna be no more mourning no more sorrow, 
No more crying and no more death because the Lord said in that day, I'm gonna wipe away all your tears. That's what we get to look forward to. And so no, I'm not here every Sunday to pump you up and help, and help you have a successful life now. I'm here to remind you that Jesus Christ needs to be the center and one day, because he won, we're gonna win as well. Praise the Lord. Verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. God still does miracles today. And the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. All right, so this, this is one of those classic one another verses, and that leads you to your next point. If you're taking notes, we should confess our sins to one another. Now, of course, be careful as you do this. You don't have to give all the gory details but, but here's what I know. One of the reasons revival is not happening in churches is because we're not confessing our sins to each other. We're too proud, right? We, we, we don't wanna be vulnerable. We don't wanna show weakness. And so you can be general and just share a weakness. And so confess your sins. Um, we should confess our sins to one another and pray for one another because the prayers of righteous people have great power. This is the ministry of the local church. Now I gotta ask you, this kind of ministry, right? Stay with me here and think, think this through with me. This type of ministry of mutual confession and mutual prayer, where in what environment does it best take place? I would submit to you that it does not best take place during a weekend service where we all come in and we sit in rows and have limited exposure to one another. No, mutual confession and mutual prayer, that best takes place in circles, in smaller groups, where we can actually get to know other Christians and minister to them as they minister to us. I cannot stress to you enough how important our Calvary groups are to this local church for your spiritual growth. Ladies and gentlemen, we have the New Testament. We have the progressive revelation of the New Testament. We live under the New Covenant. These letters, these epistles, they're not suggestions, they're commandments to us as Christians. And here's what the New Testament commands us. Love, listen to this, one another. Encourage one another. Serve one another. Be devoted to one another. Comfort one another, admonish one another. And now James adds to the list, he says confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Now again, where does all this one another ministry happen best? Not in rows, in circles. Where we can know and be known. Listen and be listened to. Care and be cared for. Pray and be prayed for. Please, ladies and gentlemen, don't just come to church. Be the church. What is your spiritual gift? Do you know? God, the Holy Spirit, lives inside of you. He's given you a spiritual gift. And it's not about you, and it's not about me. It's about living for Jesus Christ first and people second. And, and, and the, yes, we should clap and thank God for that. This is what being a Christian is all about, one another ministry. 
And that happens not best in, in, in rows, it happens best in circles. And so if you wanna join a Calvary group, man, go to our website, calvarypsl.com, click on groups. What we do, then click on groups. We, we started these Calvary classes on Monday night, we're gonna start them. Okay, so that might be a great first step for some of you, but we also have groups. And maybe you wanna lead a group, go see Pastor Mike, but get into an environment where you can obey the commands of the one another ministries in the New Testament. I'm almost done, stay with me to the end. James now illustrates how powerful prayer is by looking at the life of Elijah. All right, so look at verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed, he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And look at this, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. That's crazy, that's a powerful prayer. That would be like me right now praying, Lord don't let it, don't let it rain in poor St. Lucie until February of 2024 and God answered my prayer. You'd all be mad at me, but can you imagine? Can you imagine? Three and a half years. Verse 18, then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. And so what do we learn from Elijah? We learn this, our mere mortal words spoken in the name of the Lord can be turned into powerful petitions that will affect real change in our lives and the lives of others. That can still happen today. <laughs> God can use you and your prayers, your mere mortal words, spoken in the name of the Lord, and he can turn those mere mortal words into powerful, powerful petitions that can bring about kingdom change on earth as it is in heaven. This is what happened when Elijah prayed. Now when we read his story in 1 Kings uh, 17 and 18, it's easy for us to think this. Well, of course, <laughs> of course Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years and it didn't rain for three and a half years. And of course Elijah prayed again that it would rain and it poured cats and dogs. God always answers the prayers of his super saints in the Bible, but I'm different. I'm just a mere mortal. I struggle all the time. God's not gonna listen to me. Hey, if you believe that, you're listening to the wrong voice. Was Elijah a super saint? Look at verse 17 again. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was a man, and he had a nature, <laughs> a fallen nature like ours. Elijah was a mere mortal like us. Elijah struggled like us. If you're with me, say amen here. Listen to this, this is gonna help you. Did you know that Elijah struggled with fear and anxiety? Elijah. Elijah struggled with doubt and depression? Elijah, but here's what I love about Elijah. Elijah did not allow his fear or his anxiety or his doubt or his depression to stop him. 
He kept moving forward for the Lord, learning to trust and obey the Lord, and as a result, his prayers were powerful. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for us to wake up from our spiritual apathy. It's time for us to stop just coming in twice a month and sitting in a row and hearing another nice sermon and saying, nice sermon, pastor, thanks a lot. That's not Christianity. Christianity is being filled with the Spirit of God. And as I said earlier, living for Christ, number one, others, number two, and yourself last, and getting involved in other people's lives and helping them, praying for them, ministering to them, encouraging them. It's not you, it's not me. Get away from the meiosis. Get away from the me-centered mentality. That is not the truth of the Bible. We've gotta get back to the Bible verse by verse, and find out how we're really supposed to live. And if we will learn, in spite of our humanity, to keep moving forward, even though we struggle, yes, we all struggle, just keep moving forward, trust and obey the Lord, your prayers can have great power as well. They really can. Can you believe it? Last two verses, and we're done with the book of James. You say, Pastor, what's the next book? I'm not telling you. (laughs) My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, someone, thank God for people like this, someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And so James ends the letter by encouraging not just the elders now, but all, pardon bad English, all y'all. All All of y'all are called to the ministry of reconciliation. Here's your last point. Go after those who've wandered from the truth. Help them come home. Put yourself in their shoes. Wouldn't you want someone to help you come home? To the Lord? And so right now, if you're thinking about someone who's wandered from the truth, don't think, you know what, I'm not gonna say anything, it might offend them, God God will do his work. Listen, God will do his work, but don't you know God uses human instruments to do his work? God may be calling you. And if that person has wandered from the flock, of the good shepherd Jesus, they're out here, they're vulnerable, and there's lots of wolves in the world that would love to devour them. Give them a call, invite them out to lunch, invite them to coffee, and when you're sitting there, you know, just say, say something like this, hey, is everything okay? I've noticed you've been a little different. Hey, I would love to help if you'd let me. Just leave it at that. At least you tried. And listen, if the Holy Spirit uses you and you intervene in their lives and they come home to the Lord, the Lord will use you to save a soul from the path that leads to death. And again, I thank God for people in the local church who share their faith with lost people who need Jesus to escape 
eternal spiritual death, paying for their own sins in hell. Thank God for people who share their faith. And I thank God for other people in the church who help bring wandering Christians back home because we know and we already learned that sometimes if we continue in our sins stubbornly, God may take us home early. Be a part of the ministry of reconciliation.